Good morning. It's the last in the series uh, based on a book by Cloud and Townsend uh, entitled The Beliefs That Drive Christians Crazy. We're talking about beliefs that seem to be Christian, have elements of truth, but aren't. And for this week, as we finish the series, that's especially true. If I know the truth, I will grow. They think that's an assumption for these reasons. They, I quote, many Christians are taught that if they simply know their Bibles, their emotional problems will be cured just by knowing the Bible. They're taught that knowing God's word is the all-sufficient cure for everything that ails them. That the Bible study and prayer are the answers to emotional problems. And the false assumption they point out is, if I know God's truth, I will grow. Um, they say you can't read the Bible and think that it says that studying it is enough. And then they point out something I think we would agree with. It points to Jesus and a relationship with him and his people. And to the degree then that the Bible becomes something that encourages us to develop a relationship with God and to develop a relationship with others. Certainly, we can't sequester ourselves in a room alone with the Bible and have a growth opportunity. It takes people. It takes relationship. It takes living. And we would agree with that. But then they say something that we're going to explore a little bit. And we're going to try to find out to which degree it's true or that we, I might disagree with it a little bit. They say truth alone saves no one. That's a quote, and I think we might take issue with that. It indicates, Jesus said to those who had believed him, if you remain in my teaching, if you remain in my teaching the truth, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in the context, this is a very famous Verse And people quote it and apply it in a number of different contexts. But the truth that it points out is very particular. It's the truth of the word, the truth of God's word. And what it indicates is that if we remain in that truth, it will in fact set us free and usher in growth. And so to what degree then um, can we maybe disagree? Look what it says. We're going to talk about God's word. And God's words. Uh, the nature and the character of God's word, uh, different than our words. Look what it says. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It begins by making a statement about God's words, God's utterances, and it distinguishes God's utterances from our utterances, God's words from our words. It says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, when we consider the character of God's word, there are two challenges. 
because his words are unlike our words. One is, one challenge is to understand the power of God's words. And that's what we'll talk about. Another thing is to understand the purpose of God's word. We're going to talk about God's words, their power, and their purpose. Let's consider first their power. It says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making a button flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It indicates here that God's utterances don't just reveal what God wills. They don't just reveal what God wills, but they accomplish what God's wills, what God wills. They perform his will. There's a word for this. If you want to learn a new word for this morning, God's word is performative. Performative. And a performative word is a word that does something. I visited my brother, and he has one of those Amazon Echo deals. Anybody have an Amazon Echo? You talk to it? You talk to it, and it does things. Play this song. So we walked into his apartment, and I forget what he calls it. He goes, play this. I think it's like Google Home. Google Home, is that going to be a similar product? Something like that. Anyway, Amazon Echo is something that you talk to. And so we went in, and he was, well, he's all charged about showing this off for me. And then I forget what his name was. He gave it a name. And, and so he's just talking to the air. And he says, play this song. And what happened? It played that song. So Amazon Echo allowed my brother's words to be performative. He said something, and it didn't just indicate, I'd like for this thing to hear this song. It actually played the song. Um, when we consider God's utterances, they're like that. When God says, let there be light, he doesn't have to say anything else. Light is created. And let there be this and let there be that. God's words have power. When he speaks them, they do things. They accomplish things. When you and I say things, sometimes our words are performative. There's some words, for, for instance, when we say, I apologize. When you're talking to someone, that's not just an expression of something. It actually is accomplishing something. I apologize. And in that sense, they perform something relationally. We can't create things by our word. We can turn some things on with an Amazon Echo. God's words are very different. When God says something in the saying, it does that which he wants his words to accomplish. They're performative. When we consider God's utterances, then, there are two challenges. One is to understand that his words are performative. They do things. Another is to understand that God's word performs Multiple functions. This will be important for us. When we think of his power, his words have power. His words are also, they have purposes, and a couple different purposes. Look what it says in Hebrews 4, 11 through 16. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It says the word of God is living and active. It's another way to indicate that God's word is performative. It does things. It's not static. It's not just something that sits there. When God speaks, his words don't just sit there. They come into us. They create awarenesses within us. Um, what does God's word do? And as we look on, here's what it says. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Soul and spirit are things you can't see. Joints and marrow are things you can see. God's word separates immaterial things and material things. It separates and divides. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It splits them. This splitting triggers a very strong reaction. Again, this is something it says. We don't need to make the word do this. It does this. It's performative. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this creates, in the context, a really strong reaction. Look what it says. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me define a couple words. Uncovered literally means naked. It means naked. So what ends up happening, um, everything is naked before him. And not just naked, but laid bare. Let me tell you what laid bare is. It's either one of two images. Picture a wrestler that has another wrestler by the throat in a hold, and having his this other wrestler by the throat, this guy's in a very vulnerable position. If you're able to get your arm around somebody's throat, that's a very strong hold, very difficult to break. It could mean that. That's one of the images created by the word. Probably another image is more apt because it's talking about two-edged swords and it's talking about things that are exposed. I think this is the image of an animal. The person dealing with the animal stretches its neck, cranes its neck back, and if you have a knife and you are stretching the neck of an animal back, what are you about to do? You're about to sacrifice it. Um, that seems to be the image of an animal ready to be sacrificed, naked, neck craned backwards, and apparently God with a razor-sharp knife. That's what the word of God affects. Um, it creates a sense of exposure and vulnerability. Would you agree with me? 
that's not a really nice thing. Tell you what, if you are naked, okay, you're naked. Somebody's standing over you with a razor-sharp knife. They ask you to tilt your head back. I guarantee you're not going to say, thank you, I'd love to. That's not a really nice thing. Would you agree with me? That's one of the purposes of God's words. It brings us to a point of exposure, a point of vulnerability. It, it's a place where we don't feel very safe. We don't feel very secure. We feel somewhat exposed. Um, this is not something that God's word might do. God's words are, what's the word we used? Performative. They accomplish the purpose for which they're sent. This means that this is, in effect, happening. Some of you can understand that, can't you? Feeling exposed and vulnerable? Uh, especially, um, well, there's some individuals that would say, um, I don't feel that way. But what it indicates here, God's word goes out. It doesn't come back without accomplishing that for which he sent it. Um, if this is the function it performs, then this is the function. And then now, now we've got to ask a question. What word of God is it talking about? Are there several of them? What word is it talking about? The word of God that existed at the time is, this is about probably 50, 55 A.D. What word of God existed at that time? The first 39 books. The Old Testament of the Bible. That was the Bible that they had at the time. Uh, it's the Old Testament of the Bible. The first 39 books of the Bible. That's the word of God they had at the time. And it indicates then, uh, that the Old Testament is supposed to produce insecurity. The Old Testament has some comforting parts and some really nice parts of the Old Testament, but by and large, it's, it's uncomfortable. Would you agree? I was in China and talked to a lot of Chinese who had limited exposure to the Bible. They really had a hard time with the Old Testament. Genocide and sacrifices and people getting killed and, and images there that were anything but gentle, but were kind of disconcerting, kind of uncomfortable. And in the context, what it's talking about within these chapters of Hebrews is a couple million people go into the wilderness and everyone dies in the wilderness but two. And again, other people come out of the wilderness, but they were born. But of the original ones that went in, not only a couple of them came through. Uh, the Old Testament is supposed to produce a sense of insecurity. That's one word of God. But then there is another. Look what it says in John. This is the text, the second text. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. It differentiates between the word of God that was proclaimed through Moses, a word that kind of creates exposure and vulnerability, and the truth that came through Jesus Christ. Was the word given through Moses the word of God? Was it the word of God? Was the word given through Jesus the word of God? Which word was a more accurate, complete reflection of who God is? Jesus Christ. He is the living word. When God speaks a word, when he speaks himself out, it wasn't just a list of ten things. When God spoke himself out, those words appeared. They went into Mary. They came out of Mary's womb. And so the word of God, that which expresses who God is, clearly, precisely, those words became flesh, and we heard a baby cry. That baby grew up. And Jesus Christ reveals the character of God to us. Here's the question. Does he have the same impact? The law came through Moses. Grace and truth come from Jesus Christ. And then in Hebrews, it goes on to talk about, so Remember that first image of the Word of God. Then it talks about, well, look what it says. Um, we do not have a high priest, and I'm reading the last part of Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest, and it's talking about Jesus, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. When God sends a word that is an ex that is an exact representation of what he's like, it doesn't make us feel exposed and vulnerable. If somebody sympathizes with you, you really feel the opposite of exposed and vulnerable, don't you? Somebody who's judgmental makes you feel kind of exposed, but somebody comes alongside and says, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly what that's like. When God comes and takes on human form, the purpose of that word is to make you feel joined, not exposed, not alone, but God in human form coming to bring himself to a place where he can understand what you've been through, what you're going through. Jesus understands exposure and vulnerability. I think Jesus experienced the power of the Word of God, the Old Testament at the time. Jesus memorized it. He knew it. But you know what else Jesus knew that no one else at that time knew? Jesus knew the Father. Jesus knew the Father. And when he was exposed to the Word, but he knew the Father, he was aware enough of the Father to say, well, this is indicating that God is like this, but I know God. He's my Father. He's like this. And so Jesus then was in a position to understand 
the impact of the weight, the exposure, and the vulnerability. But what Jesus was able to do is to pick that which was true and that which wasn't. No. No. God is not exclusive. God is inclusive. And that's Jesus reveals God in a more particular way. Um, Jesus understands that we deal with the fear of judgment. Uh, he understands that there is no fear in love, and his influence turns exposure and vulnerability into freedom and confidence. It, look what it says. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The very image that the Word of God creates as the Old Testament, exposure and vulnerability, a very, very different picture is created because of the influence of Jesus Christ bringing a sense of who God truly is, an ability to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let me tell you what confidence is. It's a word we talk about, parousia. It means speaking freely. That's what the word is. If this was a Roman courtyard and you were Roman citizens, but you're not a Roman citizen, you're not a Roman citizen, you don't have the right of parousia. I'm expressing something about the government. All of you can say something. You have the right to speak freely as Roman citizens. Nothing's going to happen to you. If you say something, you don't have the right parousia. You better watch yourself. You guys can come and you can say what you need to say. What it's saying that God tells you that Jesus sympathizes with you and as you come, there's a sense of exposure and vulnerability. We can't dismiss it. It's part of us. But what God gives us is someone to walk alongside us. Jesus Christ, he understands. He ushers us into the presence of the Father. And what the Father says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak freely with me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't suggest that you speak freely with me. This is a command, not an option. And what he, what he does is he tells us about the sympathy of the Son. You know why he does that? So that you can start to relax and say real things to God, understanding you're not going to get slapped across the face. You're not going to get sliced across the neck. That's the, what the Word of God, when you understand Jesus and his teaching, it's performative. That's what it will create. So here's, if you find yourself remaining in Jesus' teaching, feeling a sense of freedom to speak more honestly with God, you know what's happening? The Word of God is being powerful in you and performative. It's creating the very thing that it demands of you, which is comfort, honesty, exposed vulnerability, but not fearful vulnerability. The vulnerability that comes from sympathy. <sighs> I'm glad I don't have to cover this up. I'm having a really difficult time with this. And what God says, tell me about it. It's important for us to express it to him. 
When we keep things locked inside, we try to push them around and we try to submerge them. And you know what God says to you? Come to me. Tell me about it. What are you struggling with? But God says, speak freely with me. This is a relationship. You have nothing to be afraid of. How do I know? I sent my son to sympathize with you so you don't have to come alone. You can know that I understand. I sent my son so that I would understand. Speak freely with me. I want you to come with freedom and confidence. Freedom, when it says in Ephesians 3, in him and through faith in him, that's Christ, we may approach God with freedom. That's the same word, parousia. That's the same word. We may approach God with freedom, parousia, speaking freely, and confidence. Let me tell you what confidence is. If I feel like a stranger, some of you are very comfortable here. You walk in, you know where your seat is, and you just come and you feel included. I sit there. Get out of my seat. <laughs> I mean, you know exactly where you see. You feel very comfortable. You walk in, you drive in, you know your parking spot. Some of you might not, you haven't been here a lot, and you don't feel quite as confident. You don't feel like you belong. You don't feel included. And what the experience, when it talks about confidence, it's talking about the sense of feeling comfortable, feeling included, like I belong. Here's what, through faith in Christ, you approach God feeling like this. <sighs> Finally, I'm glad I get a chance to be able to sit down and talk to you. And you express that. How many of us feel that way? I, I would imagine for a lot of us, we're somewhere in between exposure and vulnerability <laughs> and freedom and confidence. As you... Allow God's word to remain in you, the words of Christ, understanding that the word of God in the Old Testament is supposed to have one purpose, the word of God in the New is supposed to bring another. There's not a mistake here. As you let that word remain in you, what it's going to do, I'm not saying what it might do, his word is performative. You let that word remain, it will begin to cause you to be more comfortable in his presence. Because his word is powerful. It affects the very things he wants to create. So you know what your task is? Not to try to make it do that. You know what you can do? Just let it remain. Think about it. Hear it. Meditate on it. Give room for it in your head. And as you get, make room for it in your head, guess what it starts to do? Listen to me. It starts to rewire the way you think about God. It's powerful. It'll change the way you think about him. And as that's changed, it will change the way you relate to him. You say, Mike, no, yes, it will. You know what? We don't, we don't trust it. We try to make it do things. Let it remain. Be in places where you think about it, meditate on it. You understand why I have a problem with, if I know the truth, I will grow that being an assumption? A false assumption? If you allow the truth to remain, it will change you. It's not just things that are written for you to do. 
It's something that it's inside. It's powerful, living, active. It doesn't just stay there dormant. You understand what I mean? Again, it's very unlike our words. Um, what it says in Romans 8, another way to see it, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Okay, here's another way to express what the function of God's words are. That's why I talked about God's word and God's words. God's word is performative. God's words have two different purposes. One, the old words create slaves who fear God. You have not received a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, exposed and vulnerable. You've received the spirit of sonship. The new word of God creates sons and daughters who love God. That's what the purpose of the word is. You might say, wait, Mike, time, time. This is really confusing. Why does he create one word to do one thing and another word to do another thing? Anybody have that question? That's a decent question, don't you think? Why, why do this only to do that? Look what it says in Galatians. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Let me tell you about the way it worked in terms of the way Romans raised their kids. A lot of kids never made it to the age where they grew up. A lot of sickness, a lot of war. So what ended up happening, if you were born into a family, you weren't considered an heir of the family by being born into it. There was a period of training that you needed to go through. So you would have a tutor and a trustee that would supervise you up until the age you were 18, and then another one between the age of 18 and 25. If you lived till that time, at the period when you turned 25, the job of the trustee and the guardian ended. It was done. The father gave them their walking papers. They went to take care of somebody else now. Your relationship with your father then went to a different thing. You didn't spend much time with your father until 25. Now, but when that's removed, now you're an heir, and now you have a different relationship with the father. Why would This is the way Paul describes how God has revealed himself to the human race in two phases. In the first phase, just like the tutors and guardians that took care of a kid up until he's 18 and 25. By the way, that tutor and that guardian was not a really nice person. He was a slave driver. He was a taskmaster. He really beat some things into the kids. He's really not a nice guy. And God equates, Paul equates that with what happened on the front side of the cross. That's the way it felt. Jesus comes and he opens the door to mankind. Now we get not to be raised by the tutors and the guardians. Now who steps into the scene? God the Father. He gave them a task for a period of time until Jesus came. And then the Father said, guess what now? Now 
I sent you this spokesperson up until this point. Now, this is what I am like. How do you imagine that kid up to the age of 18 and 25, knowing what happens every week when that ends? It ends. And then comes the time that that he is no longer treated. He's, he's a son, and he maybe gets ready to do the same. Hey, son, son, those days are over. What do I do now? Now you come to be with me. What do you mean? I want you to show you what it's like to have a relationship with your father now. I put that in place for purposes, but that's all behind you now. Now you relate to me. That's what happened when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, now you get a relationship with the father. And he's not like that. No exposure and vulnerability. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there was a purpose there, but the purpose ended when Jesus came. Jesus coming signals. The end of God is tutor and the beginning of God is father. Jesus allows us to become sons and daughters. Look what it says. Um, so also when we were children, verse 3 of Galatians 4, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. To redeem means to release. To redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Jesus came so that you could be treated not as a slave, but as a son and a daughter. And then it says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Um, Why does God give us the spirit? You know what some individuals say? God gives the Spirit as somebody like a divine policeman who taps us on the back and says, you did that wrong. Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Or he gives subjective impressions. I think I should call Mary. I think I should call Jim. Maybe sometimes that happens. The primary job of the Spirit is to help you to think about God the way Jesus did. It's called the spirit of his son. It's, let's have an illustration. Let's say I grew up in a very, very questionable home. One where I was not loved and cared for. I was. Let's say I wasn't. And my mental representation of my mother and father, what would you imagine? It wouldn't make me feel very comfortable, would they? When I think about home, and some of you, this is your thought about home. I feel uncomfortable. I feel nervous. It's not a place where I was secure. It's a place I felt insecure. Travis grew up in a great home. Anyways, let's say Travis. So, Travis grew up in a home where his parents were cooperative. They wanted to do in him that which allowed him to be the man that he's become. They were accepting of his need to be nurtured and comforted. When he cried, they went to him. They were sensitive to his signals. Sometimes he got tired and he cried and got cranky. And they understood the signal that he was sending. They didn't slap him across the face. They said, come here, let's lay down and have a nap. 
They understood not only what he was saying, but what was behind what he was saying. And they were available. They were here. They were cooperative, accepting, sensitive, and available. And because they were like that, Travis grows up with a very secure sense. His mental representation of his parents is, yes, yes. Very different than, again, in the illustration that mine would be. Mine would, I mean, his would. Feel comfortable. I had a question. So we both have mental representations of home. Do you understand that? Mental representations built on the way we were raised. And it affects us, by the way. We know that security in a home creates self-esteem, self-control, mastery, and empathy. Because, and if again, in the illustration, Travis, being raised in a home, he would have a good sense of himself. His parents were responsive, and he feels not like narcissistic, but he feels important, self-esteem, self-control. He's learned that people are there, so he doesn't have to get what he wants now. He's learned to wait, to be self-controlled. They'll be around. I don't have to demand everything I want. Self-esteem, self-control. Also, mastery. Because he is conscious that people are looking for him, he could grow up and study things. He could look and learn about things because he knows he's being taken care of. Mastery is easy. And empathy. He knows that relationships are good. Now, if I grow up in a home where that's not there, my self-esteem might not be as great. I might be very demanding. I might be too nervous to master anything. And I'm not very empathetic. Do you understand? What would happen if Travis's mental representation of his upbringing, if he was able to put it into my head? And when I thought of home, I could think of home as he thinks of home. What would happen to me? You know what would happen to me? My self-identity would become like his. My self-control would increase. Mastery would increase. Empathy would increase. You say, why are you saying this? Do you know why Jesus sends his spirit? To give you the mental representation of the father that he had. To build that understanding in your head. That you'll think about the Father like He does. And you know what will happen as that happens? Self esteem, self control. You know how God increases your self control? Not by slapping you in the face but by telling you, I'm here with you. You don't have to demand it right now. I'm not going anywhere. Master empathy. Um, That's the role of the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ coming into us, our being able to relate to Father as Jesus. Does that happen all of a sudden? All of a sudden? Tell you what happens, though. If you will 
let Jesus' word remain in your mind, you know what slowly will happen? He will change the way you think. You say, how do I know that? Because God's word is performative. It accomplishes the thing that it demands. God tells us to love him with all our whole soul, heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the way God does that is he comes and he allows us to think of God the way he truly is, the way Jesus sees him. And as that happens, guess what? Fear beget love. Does fear beget love? Absolutely not. Love beget love? Absolutely. When you start to understand you're loved, you will love and you will love. That's the way it works. Um, what happens if we fail to distinguish between the old word and the new word? What happens if we fail to distinguish between the old word and the new word? You know what that would be like if we dismiss the fact that the word of God has two purposes? It would like it would be like living at a home with two fathers, and you don't know what father is coming. Listen, you don't know if the ogre with the whip is coming or if the nice guy father is coming. And if you don't know that, what would that feel like? What would that feel like? Some of us understand what this is like. Uh, I grew, uh, some grew up in a home where alcohol is a problem, and if the father is not home, Right at dinner time, it's not a good sign. That probably means that he's stopping somewhere after work. And when he gets home at time for dinner, he's a good father. But if he stops somewhere and he's getting loaded, and 5.30 turns to 6.30, and 6.30 turns to 7.30, and if he's not home yet, you end up trying to think, uh-oh, he's not going to come home to be the nice father. He's going to be the angry father. He's going to be the drunk father. And then 7.30 becomes 8.30. Again, sometimes you don't know what kind of father you're going to have when 8 or 8.30. Some of you know what that's like. When we fail to understand that Jesus reflects God, you know what it ends up doing? We end up keeping two words in our two two different words in our brain. One that makes us feel like slaves, another one makes us feel like sons and daughters. What do you call a person whose mind is split? What do you call a person like that? Schizophrenic. Do you know what ends up happening when we think that God is a combination of Sinai severity and Calvary kindness, where we try to keep those two things in our head and say God is both? It creates spiritual schizophrenia. Spiritual schizophrenia, we don't know how to relate to him. We don't know whether he's going to be the slapping across the face God or the nice God. And Let me tell you something. Jesus reveals God. Okay, Mike, if that's true. And by the way, um, spiritual schizophrenia, you deal with that. You deal with that. If you don't think you deal with that, I'm concerned about you. I don't think it's possible to live in America in the 21st century and not deal with spiritual schizophrenia. I don't think it's possible. We're taught that 
that we failed to distinguish between the old covenant and the new. I hadn't heard many messages that differentiated the two, and it's critical to do so. Critical. When we try to make God a hybrid, it's trying to form two different pictures in our head, and no wonder. I feel like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Application. Remember a guy, pastor, I used to work with a long time ago. Um, he said, you know what, Mike? I don't need to know more of the word. I need to do what I already know. That sounds good, doesn't it? You know what that dismisses? The Bible is not given to you to give you stuff to do. The Bible is performative. As you keep the words in your mind, it changes you. That's what that guy dismissed. The Bible is not here just to tell you what to do. As you think about it, it's going to change your image of who God is, and that will change your life. That's what that dismisses. I know another guy actually used to come to Hope, and he said, you know what? I needed to go somewhere else. Sometimes I just need a good, strong punch in the nose. Two Soft on sin here. I understand what he was saying, but he was wrong. How can you tell? Well, the word of God is performative and it creates. And you know what God does to change you into his image? He doesn't punch you in the nose. In fact, you know what he does? He sends a son to sympathize with you. That's what he does. And he invites you to come to the throne of grace to speak freely. And as those things become more rooted in you, listen to me. It will make you more like Christ. You do not need a punch in the nose. What you need to know is that Jesus sympathizes with you. He brings you into the presence of the Father. And as you learn to speak freely with the Father, there's a change that occurs that will promote Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Did these things happen all at once? Of course not. Remain in the Word. In fact, I'll give you two things as we close. Um, remain. Um, go to a place, and this it would be one place that I could think of that takes it seriously, um, that distinguishes between Old Covenant images and New Covenant. I'm not saying that the Old Testament is bad, okay? No, not bad. It has a purpose. But it was supplanted by Jesus' revelation. It reveals God, but it doesn't reveal God as clearly as Jesus does. Amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? Does the Old Testament reveal God? Does it reveal it as clearly as Jesus does? Does the Old Testament reveal God as clearly as Jesus does? No, it does not. Is it bad? No. No. It's not bad. It's just not as clear. They have different purposes. Go to a place where that difference is understood so that you don't become more of a schizophrenic than we already are. Okay. <laughs> Go to a place with that and... and <laughs> Seriously, make room for God's commitments. Say, why? It will change the way you think about him. And changing the way you think about him will change the way you live.
Uh, come on, worship team, come on up and sing a closing song. By the way, and I've said this before, fear cannot beget love. Only love can beget love. And that's why God sent his son to reveal who he truly is. First, Father, thank you for who you are and for revealing yourself. You reveal yourself in stages. Who you are has become increasingly known since Jesus arrived. He is the word made flesh. No one has seen God at any time. The one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, he has made you known. And thank you for revealing your face to us through your Son. I ask that we would know you and understand your face so that we might become like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.